morning, church family. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks, Adam and the worship team. Uh, there was like some break dancing going on over here, and uh, I didn't know we were that kind of a church. All right, we are in Revelation 7 today. We're going to stand as we read God's Word. Uh, if you have a pew Bible, it's uh, page 968, the very back of the book. And I have no… Okay, yeah, that's, that's happening. Okay, um, Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and, and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You can be seated. If you have uh, any Jehovah's Witness friends, maybe you've been invited to uh, what's called uh, a remembrance ceremony. And I've gone several times. I was in some conversations with some Jehovah's Witnesses, and they invited me. Maybe you had a, a flyer given to you. Um, they don't celebrate Easter, but they believe that the call that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. They believe that's a once-a-year 
ceremony to pass the bread and the wine, and that they're called to do this. And so they, they invite others to, to, to come, and I've gone, uh, I've brought our, our young adults, our Alathea students before. Um, so Jehovah's Witnesses believe, um, and, and there's a sermon throughout this ceremony. The, the sermon is basically that Christ died for the 144,000, but that you aren't part of that 144,000. They believe that, that that's been mostly or fully filled by worthy followers throughout time. They believe that only 144,000 will go to heaven, will reign with Jesus, will live in His kingdom, and that everyone else will be on the new earth. They call these 144,000 the, the anointed ones or the small flock, and that everyone else will be part on, on the new earth, be part of the great crowd. And so this sermon is, is about um, how important it is to, to remember what, what Jesus did, but that you won't be with Him. The sermon goes over and over again, this idea that, that as they pass the bread and the wine, it's not for you. You're not to take it, okay? It would be the, the, one of the analogies they use is imagine you were going to a wedding and as the bride is walking down the aisle that you stepped in front of her to take her place. That's how offensive it would be. But they talk about the 144,000, right, living eternally with Jesus. And they talk about this idea that they have Jesus as their mediator, that they have a heavenly hope. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, that all, <laughs> that sounds good. That all applies to me, right? I have a heavenly hope. I'm going to be with Jesus forever. Maybe I should, maybe I should take the bread and the wine. And what, that, what happens, the result is that it's passed around the entire room. The, the one time I was, uh, the time that I've been there, it's a couple thousand people. So they take the bread and everybody passes it. And they take the wine, and everybody passes it, the entire room. And, and millions of, of Jehovah's Witnesses do this every year. They reject the body and the blood of Christ, and they celebrate that. And I think it's cuckoo. Um, so I'm there, and I'm thinking, do I do this? Don't I, don't I do this? And I have a friend who, who does a lot of outreach to Jehovah's Witnesses, and I said, should I take the elements? Should I take the bread and the wine? He's like, I think that'd be a bad idea. <laughs> but I'm feeling convicted, right? And um, so the bread's coming down the aisle. They're passing it my way. Well, this particular year, I brought Logan with me, and um, he's probably about 10 years old. And I love my son. He has a lot of great qualities. Um, being super observant is not one of them. <laughs> and so as the bread starts to come towards us, He's like, oh, communion, sweet. So he breaks off a piece of the, the bread. I'm like, all right, God, here we go. So I break off a piece, and there are audible gasps. What's, what's, look, look what he did. Yeah. There's whispers, right? And it goes by, and I'm like sweating. And <laughs> then, the, then they, they bring the, the goblets of wine around. And I, I think you're supposed to sip from it, but I'm like, all right. So we, we kind of dunk our, our bread in there. And it's this horrible, like, uh, it's like matzo bread, it's like cardboard, it's like, it's really bad. It doesn't soak up the, the wine at all. I don't, so that goes around, and then we take it, and, and there's audible gasps again, like, oh my gosh. 
And uh, so then the sermon's over, and all these Jehovah's Witnesses just start coming up to Logan and I saying, wow, you know, they're in awe that we're one of the anointed. They were one of the 144,000, right? And um, it was great because it was an awesome opportunity. I mean, they were coming to me, and I got to say, look, yeah, Jesus is my mediator. I don't just have a heavenly hope. I have a heavenly assurance because my right, it's not about my righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness. And I'm like, these same things are available to you. You can live forever with, with Jesus. And they're like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not part of that. God hasn't revealed that to me. Um, yeah, so it was, it was an interesting opportunity. Now, I bring that up because obviously the 144,000 are, are in the passage uh, that we're going to go through today. We're going to look at that for sure. Um, but first, uh, we, need to, we need to look at a couple things in the narrative. I'm going to be looking up at this screen a lot because that screen is dead. Um, but it keep, I'll keep us on track. So we need to first address what, what, just happened, what just happened in the narrative, right? Uh, Rick, last week, he preached um, through chapter 6 and chapter 8. Now we're back in chapter 7. Um, so we went from chapter 6 where, where the, the earth was definitely harmed, right? The sixth seal was opened. Uh, it was the, the end of the earth as we know it. It was destroyed. Uh, and yet, here we are back in seven, and we see, uh, we, we read that the four horsemen or, or the four winds, they're being held back. So, though chapter seven follows chapter six, chapter seven doesn't follow chronologically the events of six. And it, and it might seem strange, but we do this all the time in storytelling, right? We, we tell a story in the broad context, and then we go back and, and fill in details, uh, that's what's happening in chapter 7. It's like when you write a sentence and then you put a parenthesis, right? You don't want to lose uh, the flow of the sentence, but you want to add in more conf- uh, context. You want to add back in more information. And so, chapter 7 is, is parenthetical. It's in the midst of, of the second coming of Christ. It's in the midst of all the action, all the events of 6 and 8, But I think it's there because God wants us to see that He first protects and cares for His people. So we aren't aren't to fear the future because God knows us and He takes care of us. His church has been sealed and is therefore indestructible no matter what tribulations come. All right, now now we'll get to the the 144,000. And so, like I said, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that this is an elite group of worthy um, believers chosen by Jehovah. Uh, there's other uh, problems with their interpretation, but, but again, we're going to go to Scripture. We're going to look at what the Scripture says, look at the evidence. And many Christians even assume that because John reveals hearing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel that the 144,000 are a Jewish remnant saved out of a future tribulation. Um, But I believe that the 144,000 is the multitude, all tribes, all people, all language, which is the entire community of the redeemed. It's the universal church throughout history. And so remember, uh, if you have questions, uh, send them to questions at ccoclih.org. All right. Many will say… 
Many will say it's, it's, it's literally, it literally says, Tim, just look, look, in the black and white, it says the 12 tribes of Israel, but I think it's symbolic for many reasons. And Revelation is, is a symbolic book. It's highly symbolic. And look, I don't want it, I personally, I don't want it to be literal or I don't want it to be symbolic. I just want to understand the truth of Scripture as best I can. Of course, I don't want to attribute something um, as being symbolic if it's meant or intended to be literal. And we love some symbolism when it comes to, say, God being our rock or our refuge or Jesus being our, our shepherd. So saying something is symbolic, um, it's not a low view of Scripture if it's intended, if that's the proper meaning of it. And as Rick has said, look, just because it's symbolic doesn't mean that it's not real. And I want you to think for a sec. Think about Passover. Think about the Old Testament sacrifices. Think about the Levitical priesthood. Think about the temple. It's interesting that from our perspective, what we see are aspects from, from concrete historical reality, right? We would agree with that. But they're also symbolic of, of Christ's sacrifice and our restored relationship with God, the reality of Christ's heavenly existence, and our changed existence as well. Now, think about it in reverse. God knows the end from the beginning. God knows all reality. It's His reality. He knows what is really needed to satisfy His justice and His mercy so that we can be rescued. And what that sacrifice will bring about in us and our continued existence and our relationship with Him so that, so that God institutes these symbols in the Old Testament to prepare our hearts and our minds. And sometimes we refer to this as, as maybe types and shadows. So, from man's perspective, we see that in Revelation, that Revelation is, um, the Revelation in, uh, <laughs> from man's perspective, we see in Revelation symbolism based on past reality. But from God's perspective, what we see in Revelation is, is the future reality made understandable by inaugurating symbolism in the past. And so, regarding the 144,000, I think that there's problems with the literal interpretation. And we're going to look at the evidence that I, that I see there. If we look, uh, if you're interested, go look at Ezekiel 9, okay? The faithful, meaning all of God's people, all of God's people are sealed with the mark on their forehead, and they're spared while idolaters are destroyed. There's no other group. Similarly, we see in Revelation chapter 13 that Satan is going to seal all of his followers the mark of the beast. It makes sense that Satan is copying God's sealing of all of his people. Revelation 7.3, our passage today, calls the 144,000 servants of God. We see the phrase bond servants or slave, doulos, throughout Revelation. We see it in all these passages. It's always in reference to all of God's redeemed people. Chapter 14 speaks of, of the 144,000 as well, so I'll be re referencing that. If you want to go there, uh, you can as well. It mentions the 144,000 as those who have been redeemed or purchased from the earth. 
They've been redeemed or purchased among men, it says. There's no reason to believe that this, this general uh, language refers to only the Jews. And there's other indications that the 144,000 are symbolic as well. A literal, re- uh, a literal reading of Revelation 14, 4 and 5 would mean that the 144,000 have never lied, are blameless, are virgins. It describes them as those who have not defiled themselves with women. In the context of Revelation regarding Jezebel and sexual impurity and idolatry and the connection between those two, it seems more likely that the symbolism of the 144,000 is is highlighting the universal church and their moral purity, right? Their sanctification, their holiness. And this may be as, as well why we don't see the tribe of Dan listed in those tribes from Israel. Dan became the center for idolatry. And Rick has explained that there are many symbolic themes in Revelation, especially pertaining to numbers or certain numbers. The number 144,000 is symbolic of 12 times 12 times 1,000. And so 12 being a number that represents the completeness for God's people. Think about 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and 1,000 meaning a, a huge number. This reinforces the notion of comprehensiveness and totality. And so 144,000 is a way of describing all of God's people under the, both the Old and the New Testament throughout history. And then finally, John, uh, John hears, right, in our passage, he hears the 12 tribes, the names of them, and then he hears the numbers, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. But when he looks, what does he see? Verse 9, he beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And we see the same device in chapter 5, starting in verse 5. John, John hears, right, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet when, when John looks, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And most people don't have a problem that the lion is the lamb, but some have a trouble believing that the 144,000 is the multitude. And so, why does God put it in there then? What is the significance? I think that it d- demonstrates that we are known by God. John hears uh, the 144,000 counted off into tribes. The numbers are perfect, and they're finished, and they're undeniable. But from John's perspective, the actual number is, is beyond his comprehension, so vast that he can't count it. It's as if from God's perspective, the people that are redeemed, God's people are ordered, they're represented, they're represented in His tribes. And then from a human perspective, the redeemed are incredibly diverse in geography and language and cultural affiliation. If the focus on the multitude is is the immensity and the diversity of God's people, then I think the focus on the 144,000 is on God's knowledge of and His care for His people. God's elect are chosen deliberately. They'll never perish, and none will be snatched from the Savior's hand, so that Jesus declares, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. And so, last week, 
We read in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Skipping down to verse 11. Then they were each given a, a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so, so God knows how many people will be with Him in eternity. God is saying, I know my people. I know the exact number, the number of all believers. And all believers then are, are sealed by God. It says in verse 3 of our passage, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And when you think of being sealed, I want you to think of, of a letter sent by a dignitary or an official like a king, right? And before he de delivers the letter, he would drip some hot candle wax onto the folded letter or the envelope, and then he would press into it his signet ring. This was to guarantee the contents of the letter. It was to protect it from being tampered with. And so the seal is a mark of, of genuineness. The king alone, he has this one-of-a-kind ring that would leave his impression in the wax, and it ensures that the letter is authentic, that it's real, that it's true. And so for believers, our profession of faith then is authenticated for all, by, by God's sealing. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, God knows those that are His. This seal is also a stamp of ownership. Anyone who would see that wax impression would know that the letter is, is the property of, that it belonged to the king. In the same way, God bought you with a great price, which was Christ's death on the cross for your sake. And so we are redeemed from slavery to sin and self-righteousness, and now we're His. We're marked with His name. Paul explains uh, to the Galatian church, he says, Christ bought us with His blood and made us free from the law. In that way, the law could not punish us. Christ did this by carrying the load and by being punished instead of us. It is written, anyone who hangs on a cross is hated and punished because the price Christ Jesus paid, the good things that come to Abraham might come to the people who are not Jews. And by putting our trust in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit He has promised. The seal, then, is a guarantee of our security. Only the authorized person who, who is intended to, to, to open the letter, to read the letter, should open it. If the letter were lost and someone found it, they would know from that seal that's not for them. They weren't to open it. Um, they could death or extreme punishment might come if they did. It was not for them. This is why only Jesus can open the sealed scrolls. Remember in Revelation 3.12, Jesus encourages the church in Philadelphia. This is what He says. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And so we see security in Christ 
He makes us pillars in the temple of God. We have entrance to the new Jerusalem. And so our ceiling is this, this membership in the community of the redeemed, citizens of the eternal city, a protected place where, where no one will break in, no one will attack from the outside. And so God's presence, the Holy Spirit, is that mark or that seal upon all believers. Paul declares this to the Ephesian church when he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And so we see, who is it in? It's in Jesus. It's through the Lamb. How is this accomplished? Through the hearing of the good news of Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. When are we sealed? Well, when we believed. And what happens? We, we get kingdom life. The guarantee is that the Holy Spirit resides in us. It says the same thing in, in uh, Ephesians 4, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you trust Him more and more are you increasingly drawn to His truth, that He died for your sin, that you have been purchased, that you have been redeemed by His blood, by His sacrifice? Do you love His commandments, His rules? Do you love and long to be with His people? Yes, even that person that you're thinking of right now. Are you becoming more and more aware of your own sin? Is your hate for your sin increasing? Are you becoming quicker to repent and to run to the cross, to re a renewed relationship with Christ, to forgive others? Do you see trials and persecution as part of the ultimate reality for your good and for God's glory? Do you fear God more than losing your life? Are you willing to bear witness to the Lamb, even in the midst of pressure, to conform and to compromise your faith? I hope the answer is yes. That is the Holy Spirit working in your life. You are sealed by God. This happens when we become a follower of Christ. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, as are all the saints that have gone before us and all that will leave this earth after, all who trust in the Lamb. And so whatever calamity is happening in life, we know that God has allowed it because He has sealed His people first so that they will be with Him always, so that we are safe with God. Remember, the early church was, was beaten and it was bruised. John's revelation wasn't just, just this future thing. God gave the early church and every generation this vision of hope. It's a hope for them and for us and for every believer in Christ throughout history. And believers and unbelievers will suffer. They'll suffer similar physical afflictions. Believers and unbelievers will both die. But only those who are sealed with God's name on their foreheads are spiritually protected from the final day of judgment from the wrath of the Lamb, from eternal separation from God. And so we're either sealed with God or with Satan. We'll see that in the mark of the beast. 
There is no in-between, and the Bible is clear. It's sheep or goats, wheat or chaff, heaven or hell, citizens of the New Jerusalem or Hades. Last week, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, you can flip there. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who will be able to stand before the throne? Who will be able to stand when the wrath of God comes? Well, the answer is in our passage, verse 9. It says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 22, God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall be all the nations of the earth blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so we see here that the true Israel is before the throne, complete. Verse 9 continues, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and so heaven will be filled with people of every color of hair and color of eyes and color of skin. And some that have distorted God's Word to sinfully disparage and exclude and enslave and harm any of God's image bearers. That's evil. But the gospel is the solution for racism. And it's the solution for, for unbiblical forms of, of, of so-called social justice. What some, uh, that some who hold to critical race theory would call others to reject the gospel because it's white and because it's oppressive is evil as well. Thaddeus Williams, in his uh, excellent book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, he says, the gospel I hold as the first thing is the same gospel that brings life, hope, and joy to unprecedented millions in Asia and Africa and South America and the Middle East today. It is the same gospel championed by Augustine and his follow African church fathers like Clement, Tertullian, uh, Superior, Athanasius, and Cyril over a, over a thousand years before the Reformation in Europe. It is the same gospel that the Ethiopian eunuch brought to Africa in the first century. It is the gospel that Paul, a Benjamite Jew from Tarsus, preached all over Asia Minor. Most importantly, it is the good news that Jesus, hardly a white Western European or American, proclaimed throughout the red letters of the New Testament. Verse 9 continues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And we see verse 14 connected, tells us why they are white. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so they are forgiven through sanctification, made perfect 
They are the glorified. They are those made holy by the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus. This is the church. This is the people of God. His blood, the blood of the Lamb, secures our eternal redemption. We have been bought, purchased by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And death is the price of our sin, and Christ has paid it. So that Hebrews declares, the writer of Hebrews declares, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so unlike the high priest who who would present the sacrificial lamb on behalf of God's people once a year on the Day of Atonement, Christ's once-for-all offering, it gives us confidence, the safety to be in the presence of God now and forever, because Jesus, our great high priest, His sacrifice is final. His sacrifice is complete. The result is that we can, with confidence, draw near to God with full assurance, with full confidence. His perfect sacrifice makes us purified. Our hope is secure because Jesus is faithful. And so, for all believers, for all disciples, for all the people of God, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we have eternal joy in Christ. From our passage, uh, verse 15b, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away the tears from their eyes. These are amazing promises. We can imagine what, be, what, they, what it will be like for the rest of our days, and we will enjoy them forever. But our eternal joy is misplaced if it's not in Christ. The change in formatting there in your Bible, uh, it, it notifies us, it alerts us that, that Scripture is being quoted from. There are passages in there that are quoted from Isaiah 4, Isaiah 49, Psalm 121, Psalm 23, 22, back to Isaiah 25. These are Old Testament passages about God's faithfulness to the Israelites, His presence in the wilderness providing food and water, cloud by day, fire by night. He is there with them through the tabernacle. When we see in John's revelation the fulfillment of these promises and so much more, through the Lamb, to not just Israel, but to Jews and to Gentiles from all tribes and all people and all languages. And so the Lamb is in the midst of the throne because Jesus is at the center of it all. He stands between us and the throne as our eternal mediator. Verses 11 and 12 say, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne 
and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Like any cult, Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't worship Jesus. They don't believe that He's God, but, but in fact, they really don't want Jesus. They want what He provides. They want a perfect and a pain-free world. They actually reject Christ, not just by not participating in communion and passing the bread and the wine, but, but through bad theology and a sin nature, they will try and work their way to heaven rather than accepting the free gift of grace, rather than clothing themselves in the righteousness of Christ. Let's go back to that passage in, uh, let's go back to chapter 6 again for a moment, verses 15 and 16. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. They would rather the rocks fall on them. They would rather a landslide cover them up than experience what? God's presence. It says, the face of Him who was seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. And so, for the unbeliever, the most horrifying event, judgment, is God on His throne and the Lamb. For, for the believer, this is the glory of heaven. What the world is most terrified of, God on the throne and His Lamb, is what for the sealed will remove all fear. For those that are His, God and the Lamb is what will give us peace. It's what will bring justice. It will be what brings victory over death and sin. It is our only hope for salvation. The enemies of God tremble at seeing the face of Him who is seated on the throne and the Lamb. Christians, God's people, will never, ever get enough of that image. Heaven will be the continuation of an already established relationship. It makes, it makes no sense that those who don't follow Christ as their good shepherd, those who don't love Christ now, that, that they will follow Him and love Him then. It is illogical that those who don't long for God's presence or want to be with God's people in the here and now will want to then. We are made in the image of the triune God. He is three persons, and so we are therefore inherently made for community. I know I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but lone wolf Christianity is not biblical, nor is it the reality of heaven. In fact, Jesus says that if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't love Him. Take a look at 1 John 4. Jesus says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The opposite side of that coin is that it is hard to separate the head from the body, the foundation from the church, the groom from the bride. And so if you're wanting to find Jesus, he'll be with his church. If you want to follow Jesus, he'll lead you to his church. And if you want to honor Jesus, he'll connect you with his church. Understand this as well, that as Christians, if you are expecting heaven in this life, 
you will be disappointed. Preacher uh, Dr. Vadi Bakum uh, says that much of our grief and our pain and our disappointment come from what he calls an over-realized eschatology. He says, we are looking for these things that typify the age to come to exist in the here and in the now. And so we grieve and we mourn and we hurt and we want to shake our fists at God. Why? Because I'm a Christian and I've experienced great loss. I've experienced great pain. And when you stand before His throne, it will be reasonable for you to expect not to have loss and not have pain and not have suffering. You're angry with God because He hasn't given you here and now what He has promised you there and then. These promises make no sense if we get them here and now. What are we looking forward to? Yes, tribulation will come. We're not escaping it. John introduces himself in Revelation 1.9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. John's gospel, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you, have made, you, have, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have come, overcome the world. Luke testifies in Acts, he says, the disciples, they needed encouragement to continue in the faith through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul declares to the church in Rome, he says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so Christians in the church will experience tribulation. John knew that. Jesus warned of that. The early church experienced it. There are Christians right now being martyred. It is a present reality because we may have escaped some of the tribulations. Living in 21st century America doesn't mean that there aren't a whole host of other problems that come along with that, maybe like our over-realized eschatology. It doesn't mean that things won't change. The question is, if tribulations do come and we do suffer for our faith, what will we think about how we spent our time during the reprieve? For the unbeliever, the problem of evil is a, is a reason to hate God, but the trials that harden the hearts of the ungodly act to purify God's adopted children. And so trials and tribulations and suffering and persecution will come, but because we are sealed, we can respond in faith, because our salvation is assured not by our performance, but by the victory of the Lamb our faith is strengthened. And I'm not saying that we won't grieve. The Bible says there, there's a time for that. But John's revelation helps, helps us to pull back the curtain, pull back that curtain a bit and see reality so that we are not overwhelmed, but we are free and we are safe. And as a dad, I, I get this. Uh, my kids are are too big to <laughs> jump in the bed when they uh, hear a bump in the night, but there's still other ways in which I can help my kids feel safe. Among them are, are almost 28 years of marriage and almost 50 years on this planet. The other day, uh, I was helping a friend move and a uh, very heavy piece of equipment, and, and they said, man, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to get this down. And, and my son says, it'll be okay. 
my dad is super strong. <laughs> so I've got that going for me for maybe a couple more years. I can say, yes, I'm here. Don't worry. It's going to be all right. How much more should we trust our eternal Father? Paul, inspired through the Holy Spirit, he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he's right. The promise of safety in our salvation, as seen through John's revelation, should, should keep us from getting overwhelmed, mired in fear and loss, what people think about us. If we as Christians are distraught and depressed, we're essentially trying to force into the here and now what is ultimately waits for us then. Okay, P. Tim, <laughs> then why be a Christian? Because the Lamb is also the Good Shepherd. One of those verses, Psalm 23, starting in verse 4, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He is the comforter. He will anoint our head. Our cup overflows. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's the same shepherd who waits for us, who guides us, who walks with us here and now. Our ultimate, our eternal comfort is the same comforter available to you right now. He seals us. He knows us. He will see us through the tribulations in our life, and He will stand before the throne of eternity. We have a, we have a reflection service coming up next week, and um, again, if you do have questions, we want to hear those questions, all right? We want to hear from you guys and what you're learning, how you're growing through Revelation. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this revelation that pulls back, um, pulls back the curtain, that we see reality. God, let us trust in you. Trust in the reality that we are known by you, that we are sealed by you, that we are safe in you, despite what we see in front of us sometimes despite the trials and the tribulations in our lives sometimes. God, that we have a broken view of reality does not mean that, that it is not, that you are not true and good and beautiful. You are the good shepherd. Help us live lives trusting in the reality of the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.